1997, Dr. Joanne Brown and I conducted the attached interview. It's now going to be reposted on both the Opioid Healthcare Response Initiative of the Palm Beach County Medical Society and the Expert Speak Project through the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thank you for listening. We do have a very intriguing man we're going to talk to, Robert DuPont, and he's a physician. But Dr. DuPont has been very active in the areas of substance abuse and addiction for 20, 30 years. I've known of him. Dr. DuPont was the first director of the National Institute of Drug Abuse and served directly under Presidents Nixon, Ford, and Carter. He was also the second director of the White House Drug Abuse Prevention Office, and sometimes people will hear that office referred to as the drugs are. There are some people who would think that his approach is not correct, but that's the purpose of discussion, and that's the purpose of, of reading. Dr. DuPont, welcome. I am right here, and I was thrilled with that introduction. Thank you very much. You're welcome, sir. Thank you for joining us. My privilege. You're up in Washington now? Yes, I am. a clinical professor of psychiatry at Georgetown. I enjoyed reading your book, sir. Thank you. I think it's very good, and certainly it's written from the perspective of someone who's been, shall we say, in the business for a while. That's right. One of the things that, as I was reading, is I saw different areas where I think people might disagree in in the treatment modalities. But what I'd like to do is get into that aspect a little bit further down the line. How is it that you felt this book needed to be written? Oh, and give us the title, please. The Selfish Brain. I love it. Learning from Addiction. The part that I have found most interesting the evolution of brain biology as we, for the first time, understand why chemicals as different as marijuana and heroin and cocaine and, for that matter, alcohol and nicotine produce addiction. For a long time, there was no way to put those together because they were such diverse chemicals. They all stimulate the brain's pleasure center, dopamine receptor centers in the nucleus accumbens and the ventral tegmental area, they're called. Basically, they push the more now button on the brain. What happens to the person who is addicted is that he or she falls in love with the chemical response in the brain that has all kinds of effects on a person's life, including, obviously, effects on their health. We should point out that dopamine is a hormone, but it's in the brain, and it's one of the ways in which the various cells and sections of our our body, let's put it that way, communicates. Yes, it's a neurotransmitter going between axon and a dendrite across what's called a synapse. It's kind of of a chemical packet that is released into the synapse to send a signal. It's the kind of switching, the chemical switching that goes on in the nervous system. And it's normal to have this, right, sir? Oh, absolutely. And, And I think one of the things also that's very interesting is why this system is in the brain. Basically, what's happened is human beings in a restless exploration of the environment have come up literally with half a dozen chemicals that feel the brain's signal and produce this natural release of the dopamine in an unnatural or a chemical way. The closest analogies in non-chemical life to the addiction are sexual behavior and feeding behavior, both of which involve the same neurotransmitter systems. And of course, we've had over the same period of time that we've had the drug epidemic, we've had an epidemic of eating disorders. So The biology hasn't changed in the last 30 years, but as I say in the book, the software has changed. 
it has exposed a lot more people to, to these addictive disorders than ever before in history. Well, so, this is so fascinating. Let me just kind of reiterate this idea of falling in love with drugs. We need this hormone to fall in love with each other, propagate the species, also to fall in love with food and make sure exactly. we eat enough, fall in love with our children and make sure they're taken care of. So this hormone is really not, it's very unromantic, though. It's interesting to think about the fact that these natural kind of stimulation for this pleasure centers are not in themselves safe. I mean, the sort of presumption is that somehow the chemicals are dangerous and natural isn't. And if you look at sexual behavior, I think in particular, what you find is tremendous layers of social control that are laid down over this behavior, that sexual behavior is not a simple biological process that in human communities and families there are very elaborate rules that are established about sexual behavior and of course the same thing is true about eating behavior because what happens with addiction is you've lost control and so the game is to regain control of your life absolutely and in the book you make reference that addicts act as if or the same as people who are in love yeah and it's true because when you're in love sometimes you do some pretty perhaps dangerous things. Judgment is missing in that kind of situation, and that's, of course, exactly the most mysterious thing in looking at from the outside and an addicted person is why they do such dumb things, why they do things that are so hurtful to themselves. Of course, that's exactly the same reaction that one has often enough with somebody who's in love, that they don't use the good judgment that they use in other areas because the brain, essentially, in its desire for more of the stimulation, changes the thinking, and the person's thoughts are distorted, and they're relatively helpless. It's not only the sedating effect of the drugs, but also this love effect of the drugs that impairs judgment. Exactly, and something that has been a great mystery for a long time, and that is we used to think that addiction to drugs and alcohol had to do with withdrawal, that the person was hooked on the drugs. The treatment was thought to be detoxification. If you could just get the person unhooked, the person would be fine. And by that model, what we would expect is that people would go into a detox program and come out and say, thank you for saving my life. I'll never do that again. That was a nightmare. And good riddance to that. I'll tell all my friends not to do it, too. And, of course, when people went through detox, exactly the opposite happened. They came out and went right back to it. Exactly. And this was true even if they had been, in, for example, in prison for 10 years. And you can't explain that behavior on the basis of withdrawal. You can, however, explain it on the basis of a love affair. And I think most of us are aware if we've been in love with someone and you put us with that person again, even many years later, especially in a private kind of situation, the possibilities of loss of control are very great. And there's been a, rather a lot of research done over the years about how addiction is a learned response because of the reward being over and over again. Another thing that is in the book that I think is really quite striking is that when people have used a drug over and over again, when they do the things that cue the drug use, that is, are in the settings and have the other associated phenomena, the pleasure centers actually respond to those psychological cues. In other words, you don't even have to have the drug. The brain has learned to release the dopamine. And even in the absence of the drug, the person can get high. Remember a couple of years ago, Dr. DuPont, there was a big thing about staples being used to stimulate pleasure? Oh, and that's a really important point. The other stimulations for these pleasure centers are not nearly as direct and nearly as powerful. The chemical reinforcement that comes from a drug like cocaine, without parallel, it's a simple experiment that I describe in my book with rats in a laboratory, if they're put an electrified wire between them and a reward, rats are very sensitive to shock, even a very small shock. It's not going to hurt them, but they, it's unpleasant. 
The rats will stay and not touch that wire if there is a sexually receptive, the opposite sex on the other side, or if there's food or water. They will literally starve to death and die of dehydration rather than stop on that water. But once they've learned to use cocaine or other drugs, they will literally walk across the electrified grid as if it's not there. That's scary to think about that. That really is scary because that explains why so many people lose their job, lose their family, and, and they still maintain their addiction. We like to think that there comes a point when the patient falls so far down the chain that he decides that he's going to quit his addiction. But what you're telling me is that some people may never get to that point. Yes. In the term of art in the addiction field is hitting bottom, and it has to do with the pain that is generated by the addictive behavior. And the career of the addict is to experience a progressively lower bottoms, that is progressively greater pains. And then there comes a point when the person says, enough, they holler uncle. Much as I want to go after this, I have learned that I can't do it and still have any kind of a life. And they turn around at that point. Now, sometimes the bottom is death. Sometimes it goes that far. Probably the biggest mistake most people make about addictive disease is to underestimate the power of the disease. In the AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous model, big book of AA, calls the disease hunting, baffling, and powerful. I certainly could not improve on those descriptions for this disease. So realistically, until we can perhaps find the appropriate medication to block it, what can we do to prevent and what can we do to treat In terms of prevention, the key concept is to discourage use, to essentially change the software so that people are warned of the dangers of addictive drug use. You see a lot of messages in our society that tell us that it's okay to use a drug, but just do it under control. Those are very dangerous messages. The message that I have in the book is don't use it because you might like it. And if you do, a little bit further down the road is the loss of control. So as you were talking about the controversial things, one of the keys to prevention from my point of view is to have consequences, including drug testing, like has become common in the workplace. My view of of addiction treatment is that treatment has the sole purpose of helping the addicted person understand the disease of addiction and become involved in and committed to the 12-step programs, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, and Al-Anon. It's a redefinition of treatment's goals. Treatment is important, and I'm all in favor of funding treatment, but I think it's very important to understand what the purpose of the treatment is. The purpose is to help that patient understand that he or she has lost control because of the drug use and that this is a lifelong disease and that the person is going to have to go to these meetings pretty much for the rest of their lives if they're going to stay sober. With my own patients, part of the focus is that you've got to find some pleasure elsewhere in life. That's very important, so you have to be careful about that because nothing else is going to be quite the same of the drug use. I use the word antidote. The antidote to addiction is honesty. And one of the things I say is you can't be an honest addict. Addiction makes you into a liar. Some people were liars to begin with, but certainly whether they were or weren't, they become liars. One of the things that is really interesting is that once a person is in recovery, a lot of things that they dismissed before 
become very pleasurable. And one of the keys is that the new things that they can do for pleasure, they don't have to keep a secret. And for a lot of people who have been addicted, that ability to be honest with the people who care about them is a tremendous relief. I want to understand this a little bit more because I think this is important. You know, addiction is such a big problem. So many people suffer alcohol, nicotine, all kinds of addiction. I mean, alcohol tears families apart. You see, sure. you see domestic abuse, domestic violence, secondary to this. Are you saying that you can substitute the pleasure of a drug and substitute some other pleasure to it without being addicted to that new pleasure? The new pleasure is, you know, people talk about something like outward bound or skateboarding or scuba diving and say, okay, that's your new pleasure. That's going to replace cocaine or heroin or marijuana in your life or alcohol in your life. Uh -huh. and, and one of the things about these healthy pleasures is they almost all take a lot of work. Mm -hmm. the, the drug pleasures are very passive. They're very powerful. Okay. Uh, they're very easy. The natural pleasures, by and large, are a sort of a challenge. Do you ever find someone becoming addicted to the natural, natural pleasures? Of course, and it's just a matter of how much. What I'm know. saying is, is there an addictive personality? Is this some sort of a special person that gets addicted to things? Or, or is addiction a threat to basically just everybody and there's no real addictive personality? I think the basic answer is, that science has come up with is that everybody is at risk and there is no such thing as an addictive personality. Okay. But a lot of people themselves perceive themselves to have an addictive personality. And I, I think that they're right. The thing that they're a little wrong about is that they assume that other people don't have it also. Mm -hmm. In other words, I think they're right, they have it, but so does everybody else. The take-home message for how to manage pleasure-producing behaviors, whether it's stamp collecting or skydiving is to be able to be honest with the people who love you about your behavior. Once you have to keep it a secret, the people who care about you, the truth and whole, whole truth and nothing but the truth about your behavior, then you're in trouble. I call it the selfish brain because the brain takes over and closes off these relationships because it worries that the relationships are going to stop the addictive behavior. That's what makes it selfish. That's what makes the lying. That's what makes the secret. So, okay, I'm going to pursue this pleasure, but I'm going to be open about it. And when you do that, you are protected. So we must look at the rest of the person's life, not necessarily the addiction per se, in order to get a handle of where to get started. The question that comes to mind is, give me a hundred people, why did a certain percentage end up into dysfunctional addiction and certain percentages did not? because therein may be one of the methods that we can use or, or the clues as to, A, how to treat them, and B, how to prevent even a, a larger number of people from falling into a dysfunctional addiction. I think that's absolutely right. And one of the most profound facts about addiction is the extent to which it's the risk, although it's universal, is not equal. And some people are more susceptible to particular addictions than others. You certainly see this with eating disorders. A lot of it is genetic. So you'll see addiction running in families. And I think that that's a very important caution to see people who have families that have a lot of alcoholism and drug addiction unquestionably have an elevated risk of having the problem. Another factor is character and age and, for that matter, gender. Males are more at risk than females. 
age is a very powerful factor. The teenage years and the early 20s are very much the highest risk of the initiation of addictive behaviors of all kinds. And you'll notice that same thing is true for sexual behavior and eating disorders. Again, there's a biological substrate to all of these disorders, but also a willingness to take risks, to be impulsive. Some people, both men and women, are highly risk-averse. They're very frightened of the consequences of risky behavior. To the extent that a person has that personality type or that character, they are relatively protected. On the other hand, uh, to the extent that they are willing to jump in uh, to something where other people are going to hold back, they're more at risk. That's one of the reasons, which has always been striking to me, that a lot of the leaders of American corporations and entrepreneurs have a very high risk of addictive disease because the same kind of character traits that are very adaptive to them in business will often get them in a lot of trouble in terms of addiction because they'll just take a lot of risks. Isn't that interesting? And a lot of them are workaholics, too. That's another thing. They're, they're, that's right. They're not all, uh, by a long shot, criminals. Addiction affects, I call it an equal opportunity destroyer. It, it'll cut across all kinds of social class and character traits. What about cultural things or, or religious things? The extent to which a person is committed to religion is a very strong protection. And it basically has to do with getting out of the sort of self-centeredness that is required for addiction to go on. So anybody who is a Seventh-day Adventist or a Mormon or a Jew or a, a devout Roman Catholic, anything where they really care about their religion and its practices are going to be relatively protected. And the other thing that's very striking is the religions take a very dim view of, uh, of addictive behavior and the dishonesty associated with it and all, all the rest. So it's no accident that in the 12-step programs, AA and NA and Al-Anon, the program for families, that there's a highly spiritual basis for what's going on there. And that has to do with counteracting the self-centeredness and the selfishness that is at the core of the addictive disease. One of the most amazing changes in American society in the last 10 or 15 years has been the cultural shift in the attitude toward drinking. You see this in the ads, and Anheuser-Busch and Coors have been in the forefront of this, pushing this responsible drinking concept. They have started to say in their public statements and advertising that they don't want anybody under the legal age to drink, and that is a really big step, and really, I think they need to be commended for that. The other things they need to say, though, are two things they haven't said. One is, if you have a problem with drugs or alcohol and have ever had a problem, don't drink. And two, and most importantly, don't ever drink more than two or three drinks in a 24-hour period. If you find yourself drinking more than that, you have a problem and ought to stop. They'll never say that. And the reason for that is because most of their product is consumed by people who are drinking excessive amounts. When they really are going to be socially responsible is when they're going to say, don't drink more than two or three drinks in a 24-hour period. If you do, that's too much. When I see that on my television at the Super Bowl, then I'll know the new day has really dawned. Let's take that as a beginning point, then. Let's talk about the general social changes that have occurred over the last 15, 20 years. They stopped advertising for liquors yes. on, on, on the television. You still see it in magazines. From your perspective, and you've been in Washington, you've sat with the policymakers, sure. you've had the perspective that most of us don't have. Are we really on the right trail, or are we just getting there but too slowly? I think a lot of good things have happened. We have 50 million former smokers in the country. We have more ex-smokers 
than the rest of the world put together. That's really remarkable. We've also done, I think, a very good job on highways and drinking. The DWI program, 2 million Americans a year are arrested for DWI. I know it's made our highways safer. I mean, it's demonstrably safer. So we're doing a lot of things good. The thing that is most disturbing right now is the increase in adolescents and teenagers of cigarette smoking and marijuana use, and also LSD use. But the main things are cigarettes and marijuana. That is really disturbing. To me, the most amazing is to imagine that in 1997, increasing percentages of teenagers are smoking cigarettes, and now a third of the high school seniors when they graduate our everyday smokers. Well, I just don't think anybody looking at American health five years ago could have predicted that we would be seeing an increasing rate of teenage smoking and that it would be that high. Do you have any idea why it's happening? I think the cigarettes really work. You know, I think a lot of people believe if you got rid of cigarette adverts, smoking would stop or go down. And I'm not one of those people. I, I don't think that is. I think what has to happen is kids have to be told that they can't smoke. It's illegal for kids to smoke cigarettes, and the law is simply not enforced. And I think it needs to be enforced. So people who sell cigarettes to kids need to be punished. They need to lose their licenses. And kids who do smoke need to have consequences. For example, not play on the football team, not participate in extracurricular activities. They need to have consequences that matter to them. And the fact that the society is too wimpy to deal with this is, is I think, hurting our kids. We now have finally gotten a law passed that will provide some consequences and there will be some enforcement for those retailers that sell cigarettes to minors. And I mean, we haven't even really thought about cigarettes as being addictive because we've been told by the drug companies, oh, there's no evidence of addiction. I mean, you, you don't have to have a lot of basic research. All you have to do is talk to anybody who's smoked to find out how hard it is to get off of nicotine. To, I mean, it's, it doesn't take a rocket scientist, but yet we've been brainwashed that this addiction doesn't really well, it's exist. it's illegal, see. It, right. It, it doesn't have the scariness. You don't get put in jail for cigarette smoking. You maybe get grounded, but you don't get put in jail. I'd like to see the smoking age raised to 21 from 18. Bottom line, don't you think it's education? I mean, it's just what you're saying. People try these drugs to feel good. I mean, we've been saying, just say no, but that's so useless. You know, we try and tell people, oh, no, they, they don't make you feel good. Well, they do make you feel good, and therein lies the danger is that falling in love with that, that wonderful feeling and then losing control. Isn't that really the message that we need to get across? And some kids will respond to that beautifully. I mean, right. if you say it, they, they believe it, and that's it, because they believe adults, and they agree with it, and that, that's it. The problem isn't that those kids. I think that's great. But there are a lot of kids who, for all kinds of reasons, including, as we were talking before, biological reasons, but also cultural and characterologic reasons, who are not going to respond to an exhortation or what I call jawboning. Mm -hmm. And for those kids, I think we're going to have to try a little bit, something a little bit stronger than, than just telling them it's stupid or telling them it's unhealthy. If we can keep our kids off of drugs and, and having healthy pleasures, steer them toward healthy pleasures. I mean, so many kids really aren't steered toward any types of activities that they really feel good, make them feel good about themselves. But if we can do the substitute those type of activities and then pass laws with penalties for the negative, destructive activities, I think that the society will come a long way both in terms of cost and producing more productive individuals. Exactly. And if we can get people through to the age of 21 without starting these behaviors, the risk of their starting after 21 is very low. Such an important point because studies have shown that. Yes, absolutely. The peak risk, in fact, is the ninth grade. It's way before 21. 
people don't realize how young it is. And the kids who start even younger, and there are lots of them who start in the sixth and seventh grade, the younger they start, the worse the prognosis. So that 21 is a very nice number about all of these kind of behaviors. And community responsibility to having kids grow up chemical-free, not using alcohol, not using cigarettes, and not using illegal drugs. And we're going to be serious about our stewardship of our young people. That's what has to happen. This is so true. I have, over the course of the last decade or so, worked in the jail system a great deal. I've seen about 100 murderers, and many of them are there because of substance abuse. Oh, absolutely. And almost to a T, when I say, when did you start using your drugs, they'll always say 12 years old, 13 years old. It's almost as if I could pre-print that part of the report. And that's very frightening. It is very frightening, and think about all the kids that are out of control in the society. And it's not just poor kids. This is also true for very well-to-do families oh. that the kids are out of control. Before we run out of time, Joel, and I really want to say, again, that the book is called The Selfish Brain, subtitled Learning from Addiction. It's written by Robert DuPont, and it is published by the American Psychiatric Press. It's a good book. It's a good compendium of a lot of ideas, a lot of notions. It is not so technical that people will be turned off by the technical aspects of it, uh, and yet it's got that material in it, so you can read it at multiple levels. And if you have any question, you need just a good source book about addiction. But this is this is a, a a very good place to get started. People wanted to get involved on the public policy level. How could they do that? What is this line that the environmental groups use? Think globally, act locally. (laughs) I think that that's just as true for the drugs as it is for environmental policy. The action is really at the very, very local level. It has to do with the schools and churches and synagogues. It has to do with youth groups and, and organizations. It has to do with treatment programs, prevention efforts. In the book, I said that there was a moment I was on NBC Network News with the other drug czars, and I had one sentence, and my sentence was a summary of my 30 years in the drug field. I said, everybody criticizes the media, but I said, well, this sentence was perfect. You couldn't beat it. And that is the secret weapon in the war on drugs is the 12-step program. If we left that one idea that if you have a problem, the place to go to find real expertise is right next door at your local Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, and Al-Anon meetings. As I say in America, we're never more than two blocks or two hours from a 12-step meeting. And those places are free. It's so interesting to me that my richest patients and my poorest patients go to the same meeting. Like addiction is democratic and not related to income, so is the recovery process. And if people are interested, they can access those programs personally and find their expertise. For example, you're talking about finding local treatment resources. Well, go to an AA meeting and ask them who are good therapists. Ask them where are the good hospitals. What you've got there is a consumer's view of your local provider community. You're going to find a lot of very interesting information, that expertise that has been very hard won in those meetings. So the Betty Ford Clinic is good for its place and its time. Well, that's good for the first 30 days. But it's working at home. That's the issue. Well, you're going to come back. I mean, after the 30 days, you'll be right back here again. Exactly. And a lot of the insurance companies, unfortunately, they are not as willing to pay for the follow-up after the 30 days. So that's a restriction as well. And if you go to something like AA or or NA, that's free. 
And if you can combine a multitude of forces, I've seen people get better. I, I don't want anybody to think that addiction is hopeless. It can be difficult in some patients, yeah. to be sure, but it's not hopeless. And if you work hard enough, you get the right people, you can get ahead of it. Working with people who get well, they're among the most grateful, positive people you'll ever, you'll ever work with because they have regained their lives. Miracle of recovery. I also want to thank Dr. DuPont for all his work. Really, sir, I do appreciate it. I'm, I have followed you and read your work. It's been quite a pleasure to have the opportunity to sit and talk to you, even by telephone, nonetheless. Dr. DuPont, thank you again. It's my privilege to be here. And thanks very much. Take care.